Congratulations, boy. Many gave their lives that we might stand here once again, united in the government of a lawful republic. Guys, Octavian was henceforth to be regarded for all intents and purposes as my lawful son, Gaius. Welcome back, everyone, to the Life of Caligula podcast, episode 19. Unfortunately, sans Cameron. The Sonny to my share, the Costello to my abbot, the D'Angelo to my Heather. Instead, we have with us today the historian and writer, Lindsay Powell. He is the news editor for Ancient History and Ancient Warfare magazines, the author of several acclaimed books, including Marcus Agrippa, right-hand man of Caesar Augustus, Germanicus, The Magnificent Life and Mysterious Death of Rome's Most Popular General, and most recently, Augustus at War, The Struggle for the Pax Augusta. All are available from pen and sword books. He has also written two books for Osprey Publishing, one on the Roman soldier versus German warrior in the first century AD, and the other on the Bar Kokhba War, a subject he is exploring further in a new book that he is working on now. Born in Cardiff, Wales, he now lives in Austin, Texas. This is his third, but not final time, on the Life of Caesar podcast. Mr. Powell, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Ray, and please call me Lindsay. I I will struggle against my Southern programming and try that, sir. So I want to throw out first that when Cam and I first started this series about Caligula, we had to compare the general knowledge that we had received in mass media and school about this guy, and of course, all we thought we knew, which was that we thought it was the truth, was his crazy antics. That is probably what got him killed. Um, Because if you look him up, the titles, whether it's a video or a book, there are titles like uh, 1400 Days of Terror, The Most Evil Man, Rome's Worst Emperor. And I just have to ask, um, as you were growing up through the years, before maybe you started studying history, even though I, I have a feeling it's a hobby for you, what was your first impression when you started learning something more detailed about this man? Well, I was brought up in the media age too, uh, print and digital much later. Um, you have to remember, I was, I was a young kid when BBC TV was broadcasting uh, I, Claudius. Right. So I was, I was So I was the generation that saw Derek Jacobi. And, and to me, in a sense, Caligula is always John Hurt. Exactly. Uh, this slightly <laughs> deranged, effeminate, cross-dressing uh, weirdo um, who does some outrageous things. And of course, when you then dig into what is I, Claudius, well, that was Jack Pullman's version of uh, Robert Graves, who was doing a pastiche of Tacitus, well, actually, maybe not so much Tacitus, but mainly Suetonius and a lot of other sort of preconceived ideas, mm-hmm. uh, brilliantly rendered for a, a BBC audience with, a, I don't even think they actually in those days put like a public warning like they do in public TV over here. Yeah. But but it was shocking and, and, and it fed into this narrative narrative that we, we, we have been given. Now, um, I'm also in the publishing world, and I know that what you put on the front of a book, you have like a couple of microseconds to make an impression, and yes. it's the picture, and it's also the title. Um, and, and words like terror resonate. Words like uh, madness, insanity, they resonate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and things like 1,400 days, I mean, you know, that, 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 that compresses it neatly into something that, gosh, I could read that in a day, and it'll be titillating, and it'll be terror, right. and this is it. So, so I'm a product of that too. Um, and, and then you, 
as as you get more, I think, serious about understanding how history is made, how the sausage of history is made, the bratwurst of history, um, you, you begin to understand that uh, it's it's a very complicated process. And in fact, there are people who just study that process. I've, I've actually uh, come come late to understanding that, and and, and now I do. Uh, it's it's informed how I write about history because now you have to, in a sense, tease out the layers in this this incomplete cake to understand who's getting what information, who's who's interpreting it in different ways. Uh, I, I just gave an example. I was actually reading one article, and I, I'll mention this right now because it's top of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, this, uh, as we're going to be talking about the subject generally, um, I, I've used really two primary modern sources for some of the things that I uh, wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. One is Ancient Warfare magazine issue 6-6, uh, where Duncan B. Campbell did a, a magnificent thing called um, Caligula's Capers on the North Sea Coast, mm-hmm. and he gives a really nice summary of that. Uh, the other one, I think, is, is, is a brilliant book, which is by Alois Winterling. Uh, it's the translation of, uh, I, I presume, Alois is the man, uh, Caligula biography, which, which really upends a lot of preconceived ideas, and, and I encourage people to read that also. Mm-hmm. So having, having given those, those plugs, because I will confess <laughs> I have not written a book about Caligula, not yet anyway. Right. So if you go back to the ancient sources from which all of these things derive. Well, well, the obvious one is going to be Suetonius, his life of Caius, or Caius Caligula. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's the later Cassius Dio, I think it's book 59. Um, curiously, in all of this, we have some very late sources. You have Aurelius Victor, and we have Erosius, and Erosius is against the pagans. I think 7.5 is the reference for that. Really, it's just basically cobbling together stuff that Suetonius had done, and in fact, there's a couple of lines he literally takes out verbatim, so we know it's actually Suetonius. <laughs> yeah. Significantly in all this, and I know that you and Cam are big fans of Tacitus, of course, books 7, 8, 9, and 10 are missing. Mm-hmm. So the entire reign of, uh, of this man are, are not accounted for. So we're really left with who Suetonius is our primary written source, right. and then archaeology and inscriptions. There's stuff from ILS and CIL you can dig up, but you know they, they tend to refer to very specific moments in time, and, and it's the it, it's the way that Suetonius puts all these sort of things together, which has informed the likes of guess what Robert Graves and Jack Pullman, and then mm-hmm. here we are where we are with our 1400 days of, of terror. So, so th- what what I was thinking was this um, was that. If you look at the way that Suetonius constructs his biography, I think it's very significant that the first thing he basically tells you in his in his biography of Caius Caligula is the life of his father, Germanicus, right. a man I do know something about. But I think what, what he's doing there is, in a sense, setting up a, a figure of a moral man, a good man, the good Roman. And then how in the rest of the story, the son fails completely to live up to this figure mm. um there's a there's a there's a piece in there and we'll probably discuss it later where he uh makes the point that he really resents anybody pointing out that he's actually i think the great grandson or grandson of, of, of marcus agrippa another man i know a lot about um and, and again here is another outstanding roman so in other words you've got two people against whom he is compared and he fails miserably right. curiously in the book about claudius what Suetonius does, he begins about this with the story of Nero Claudius Drusus, who is his very famous dad, i.e. the father of, uh, uh, of um, uh, Germanicus as well. So mm-hmm. I think there, there is, there is he's, in a sense, he's warning you as the, as the reader, look, you're in for a great ride here, folks, because um, look at these slightly boring people that we right. all think are great heroes, but we got a real story to tell you now. Um, and, and I think when you, when you understand that, and the fact that he is distant in time from his from his living sources, which were going to be what fifty, sixty, seventy years um, in in time, you know, th- th- there is no personal connection between Suetonius 
and the men he writes about. Maybe when you get to people like uh, Vespasian and like the Flavians, that, that may be true. But mm-hmm. when you're talking about the early Judeo-Claudians, he's getting it from um, the notebooks and the letters and the reports that he's got because he is the secretary of Hadrian. He has access to those things and he can look at letters and comment on them. So I think you have to bear those sorts of things in mind when you're reading these modern books. We talk about 1400 Days of Terror and all that stuff. Can, can I just ask real quick, because you, you make a you, you take it in a slightly different view than Cam and I did, because Cam loves to go over the sources and analyze them. But you make a good point. Is he trying to um, impart information, but at the same time, maybe entertain or, or it's almost like here's here's these either good guys or boring guys. And now I'm going to give you a roller coaster ride of a morally corrupt man and just hang on because this is going to be, I guess, for lack of a better word, entertaining because it's not our time. We didn't have to deal with this guy. The people before us did and just hold on to this great yarn I'm about to tell you. I think there's a lot of, uh, of a truth in that. I mean, you mm-hmm. have to remember that Suetonius, someone who was disgraced under Hadrian and, and, and you know, publishes books about a variety of different subjects right. uh, this is the one he's famous for and, and and maybe i'm putting an idea in there that that that, that may or may not be true but my feeling is right. he wants to sell a book right uh, uh, in fact it's a series of books under the sink so um you know i mean these are the early days of publishing um but people still want to get a name and they want to get a profile and so on uh there was a book publishing industry in ancient rome we know that mm-hmm. um and and the fact that it endured i mean the fact that erosius is able you know four centuries or three centuries later to refer to it shows that it had currency and people people actually uh, valued it for whatever reason i'm sure because it had some salacious juicy stories right. uh, i mean you know it is it is you know 12 caesars and you know that they, they start with Julius Caesar, who was the sort of the granddaddy of them all, mm-hmm. at least by name. Um, and it goes through then this track all the way through usurpers and so on and ends up, you know, some a hint at the better times. But he significantly, he stops with Trajan and he doesn't do Hadrian. That would have been too close to his own <laughs> time. Right. Um, but wouldn't it be interesting if he'd actually gone ahead and actually written books about those? Mm. Um, so, so I think if you, if you do apply that insight that you just uh, articulated there, um, it, 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 it informs how you would look at him as a source. I mean, people can be a little extreme. They can see him as a sort of a, a second-rate biographer. They can they can he's a rag writer. He's a gossiper. I, I, there is a lot of good stuff in there, and certainly I've used him in my books about uh, Augustus and other people I write about, mm-hmm. where he quotes letters and he quotes letters of you know Tiberius and Augustus swapping correspondence um, and he talks about how he's actually seen the actual handwriting of these people and and, and that's very um, that, 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 that's very uh, thrilling in a way if you're a historian yeah. like me separated by two millennia to know that somebody actually was able to handle real documents um, but we also have to remember that if he, if he is in a sense assembling all of these little snippets mm-hmm. together, um, you have to wonder what his editorial agenda is, and it does seem to be with these particular characters. Nero is the other one. Uh, you could argue Domitian is a third. That, um, it, that because they were so outrageous in many of the things they do, um, it, one of the things I often see written in, in the words you'll see, it is commonly accepted that, or it is reported that, or it is right. spoken. These sorts of passive language, in other words, this is what people are saying, but I am not claiming they're true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I remember that point. Mary Beard did a very good uh, TV documentary, I think it was for BBC, um, about 
uh, Caligula. Um, and I think hers was a, a, unusually for a lot of TV documentaries about Caligula, quite a balanced one. And I actually like a lot of the things that Mary Beard has in terms of her perspectives on the Romans anyway. Mm. But, um, you know, she, she sort of, in a sense, made the point, and we'll talk about Institatus and so on, that some of these really are not understood by the later historians writing about him because they didn't get the context, or maybe they chose not to write about the context. They just saw it, hey, this will make a rip-roaring headline, you know, and off you go. Um, (laughs) That's kind of what publishers and and, and some authors do for the so-called mass market. Um, But, you know, it it survives to our time, so it must have been felt to be valuable enough in its own day and later did. Interesting, I've just written a, uh, an article for Ancient History magazine, which is the sister for Ancient Warfare, mm-hmm. about Pliny the Elder. And a lot of the same criticisms you could level at um, Suetonius, you can actually point at Pliny the Elder also. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sort of, in a sense, just assembles facts, um, and, and some of them they don't actually make terrible sense. But what he's, what he's effectively doing is saying, this is what people think. I'm just telling you what people think. I'm leaving you to make the decision whether true or not. Right. Um, and then you can, you, can, you, you can say, well, Pliny is, isn't a very good natural historian. At a certain level, you can say, it doesn't matter because he's a social historian. He's actually telling you things that all these right. years later tell me a great deal about the society in which he lived. And I'm really interested in that. Yes. I'm much more interested in that than the plants. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's as close as we're going to get to a time machine. If we can just get a sense of what people were doing or thinking or talking about or reacting to, it's, it's as close as you're going to get uh, to, to being there. So it, you're right. I think that's completely acceptable in and of itself as well. Uh, before we move on, I'm glad you brought up the Ancient Warfare magazine because I have mine. Uh, two years ago, my wife got me a subscription for my birthday. Mm. I've been uh, doing it ever since. And I have in my hand now, volume 13, issue four, uh, War- mm-hmm. Warriors and Wheels, the the uh, chariot combat in, in antiquity. So Great magazine, and I look forward to whenever it comes. So thank you for, for being a part of that as well. Well, I have to say, yeah. and all credit to Jasper Outhouse and, uh, mm-hmm. and the team there. We all, by the way, we are also connected on Slack, and it's so funny. I mean, even this morning I've been connected with Zidfin and London and all sorts of offices around the world. Right. Um, you know, we're, we're a driven team of people. Um, you know, I mean, we don't get paid very much, but that's not the point. We love what sure. we do. Um, and I think the philosophy, which is to enable writers who aren't necessarily academics, but but really know their subjects mm-hmm. and have a platform to express their the, the, those insights, right. um, is actually very refreshing. So I'm a, so, so I love it from that perspective. Uh, and it really started with Roman Army Talk with Talks, which is the the, the, the bulletin board, which now I think has migrated uh, in part to Facebook. But um, the other thing is also a lot of people don't have access to JSTOR.org, which is a magnificent repository journal storage. Uh, if, if you are familiar with that, go to jstore.org and you will often find if you have a public library card, mm-hmm. you will find yourself listed. You can go on there. And I could not do my research without that, by the way. So wow. plug also for jstore.org. Um, uh, they, they basically are this vacuum cleaner of published articles about <laughs> all sorts of stuff. Right. Uh, if you want geneolo- uh, genealogy or uh, geology, there'll be something for you. For me, you know, I, I go in there and I vacuum clean up stuff <laughs> about um, academic studies about, for example, like Caligula or Nero, and and it's amazing because you get really excellent scholarship. Um, but if you're going to try and actually find these things, it wasn't long ago that I would actually have to sit in a library and, and pull out volumes right. and find it the hard way, and then discover, oh, you don't do the Journal of uh, Roman Archaeology of Romania. Oh, how can I get a copy? It's six weeks. Okay, well, right. you know, I would I would still be writing my first book at this rate. So. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> but isn't that true? I mean, it, yes. the digitization of this kind of information is it's transformational. Um, yeah. and, and that plus all the ancient sources in their original languages and also in translations, many different translations. Yeah. Uh, it, it just makes the, the work of an historian. And by the way, any enthusiast that listens to your your podcast, which is brilliant, um, should, should dig around these sources and yeah. find out what there is. Go, go beyond um, the, 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 the published book and, and, and find out what there is out there because there are so many different perspectives. Right. The fun thing I have as being the news editor for the two magazines, is, and I joke with, with the, the classes I teach, is that how can you have a news editor of ancient, of ancient history? Well, the thing is, ancient history continues to be rewritten. Mm. Um, someone comes out with a um, you know a, a new discovery. It could be I forget, a, a slightly interesting one. The, the Parthenon is now believed to not be the building we think it is. That was apparently called the Hecatompedon, which means the hundred foot by hundred foot room. Really, uh, it was probably the Erechtheion because somebody looked at an account of the description of the Acropolis where they were storing the treasures, and they discovered actually they weren't talking about the big temple on the top. They were talking about the little one on the, the other side with all the. Um, the, the women uh, caryatids. Right. Uh, that is actually the Parthenon, the Temple of Parthenos, the, the Virgin Temple. The, these are the caryatids. No, the Hecatompedon is the building that we've all been calling wrongly for the last two million. <laughs> yeah, things like that, right? Yeah. Okay, what does it tell you? Well, it tells you that you know details matter. Yes. Um, it also tells you that um, a lot of people had thought, and I know we're going off topic here, but it, just to give you the insight, yeah. a lot of people thought the Parthenon, the temple, was a sort of storeroom of, of treasures, mm. spoils of war. No, 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 they'll be in the other building now. And in fact, the, the temple with the Phidias uh, Athena figure the amazing ivory and gold one is actually inside this what is genuinely a temple. So uh, things like that. I mean, who who would guess? That right. comes from hard academic work from a Dutch professor, a student in the Netherlands. Um, and you know, it, it, it it's great to discover this stuff and share it with people. So uh, you know, I, I think this is this is a great time to be alive to be a historian. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't matter that it was thousands of years ago because you know people like that are working hard every day discovering new things and let's put it together and widen the picture. Of the his of the past that we know, so I I think that's great as well, um, and so with everything that you just said about the sources, the various sources, the interpretations, and things like that, because Cam and I just recently, to the best of our ability, tried to cover some of these topics, and I wanted to get your take on it. So could you help us um, understand a little bit better Caligula's military adventure across the Rhine? Because I, I'm sitting there when we started re researching that, you know, him going up against the Germans to whatever degree is a very tricky thing. Obviously, Rome has had good and bad times against the Germans. Is he trying to match the deeds of his father or other Romans who have made their names going, ag uh, going up against the Germans? Is he just trying to create or establish a military career by going by going north? So, so let me give you, I think, the pithy the bullet point answer yeah. right from which so, is, I don't think so. Right. Um, right. I, I don't think he's trying to imitate his father, and, and I don't really think he's serious about a military campaign uh. with, 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 uh, with, a, with a footnote. Mm -hmm. um, my point is this, and, and this is where I'm going back to Duncan B. Campbell, the article I mentioned earlier. Right. It's very interesting. You, you really have to look at what the sources say, and once again, you come back to, you guess what your primary source is? It's Suetonius. Right. Suetonius is not a military man, as far as I know, never actually did any military service so he can sometimes maybe not quite understand things and i would assume and this is this is powell's assumption here is he's looking at after action reports written by people like galba 
uh, analentalists and these other kinds of people who are there on the spot who are filing them to go, but, you know, this is what you do. You, you file an annual report or that the, the Senate has to account for. Um, and he's looking at these and he's like, oh, that's boring. That's boring. Oh, oh that's a juicy bit. And he puts that bit in. And actually, he can conflate things. So when I was reading, for example, um, what I saw in the text, it wasn't clear to me whether there was one, two, three crossings of the Rhine, or in fact, maybe there were two military two military exercises and some other thing going on. Um, so, so, so I just wanted to make sure, make sure that, that this is on the, on the table here. If you read Tacitus, what, what he says uh, in the Agricola 13.4, he says that Caius Caesar meditated an invasion of Britain is perfectly clear, but his purpose is rapidly formed and easily changed, and his vast attempts on Germany had failed. Right. right. So that, that's one thing. In Germania, Germania 37, he actually went, he, he recounts all of the various attempts at crossing or dealing with Germans in various ways all the way through to Germanicus, in fact. And then he slots in soon after the mighty menaces of Caius Caesar were turned into a jest. So already by Tacitus, they decided that, you know, this was never serious. Right. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, you have to look at it from the point of view, this is my footnote. He swaps out Lentulus, who is the guy who is the Legatus Augusti in Germany under Tiberius, apparently for 10 years. Now, Augustus would never have stood for that, but Tiberius was much more tolerant. He finds a guy that does the job and lets him serve endless kind of like uh, periods of duty. Um, Lentulus is implicated in an assassination attempt, is executed, and along comes Sulpicius Galba, who's put in, and he's, in a sense, from all the sources I can read, again, guess who? It's my Tony's. Um, that he's a, the ultimate military disciplinarian, but he gets results. Yes. And if, if you read the sort of things, what you, what you see there, um, and, and, and that's also supplemented, I think, by uh, Cassius Dio later, um, what he sort of says there is um, he got tasked with the issue of levying a really big army. Um, and it sounds like it's the two Primigenia legions, so that's, let's say, roughly 12,000 men for the sake of argument. Um, and he's doing this, presumably, in late 39 mm-hmm. AD, and already in AD 40, in, in the very early months of the spring, they're engaged, doing stuff. Right. Um, so apparently it comes down to, he says, he, quoting uh, Switchhouse Galba 6.2 to 3, he says, um, he got both the veterans and new recruits into condition by plenty of hard work, speedily checked the barbarians who had already made inroads into Gaul when Caius arrived. Galba and his army made such a good impression that the great body of troops assembled from all the provinces, none received greater commendation or richer rewards. Two things there. So th- there is the there is the evidence for the disciplinarian hammering into shape levies and new recruits maybe drafts mm-hmm. people from other units along the line. The other thing is that curious thing where he said, who had already made inroads even into Gaul. So that implies that there's some kind of incursion maybe by the Cati or I don't know who exactly this is because it's not mentioned. Right. Um, and, and interesting enough, there are parallels with uh, the Lollius invasion back in uh, 15, 16, 17 BC under Augustus and other ones under Germanicus. It seems to be that the frontier, even though you've got forts there, does seem to be porous. So people are kind mm-hmm. of wandering across and doing things and causing mayhem. So it may well be that Sulpicus was already there doing these sorts of operations anyway, right. which, um, again, going back to an argument which is maybe where Suetonius is conflating things, maybe that military action gets muddled a little bit with some of the other things that go on. Uh. Um, what, what, what I'm also seeing is that, um, again, if you sort of dissect it into sort of like taglines or headings, so what I get is the impression of this from Suetonius. He gets this idea to visit the grove of Clitumnus. He gets the idea for an, exhibition, uh, an expedition to Germany. Mm-hmm. He raises an invasion army. 
levies are brought forward from all over the place. It's that the implication of that is it's not just Italy and it's not just that part of Gaul. It's going to be uh, much more widespread than that. Right. When he starts off on the Germany, he's so intent to get there that he's off racing ahead, and the Praetorians are really struggling because he takes presumably at least two cohorts of Praetorians, maybe more than that. Mm-hmm. They're supposedly strapping their uh, eagles and a signa on the mules and the donkeys so they can actually you know keep up because they're jogging. I'm going to guess. Yeah. They arrive at Mogontiacum or Mainz. Um, then we get that insight there where uh, Cassius Dyer mentions the, the Gaetulicus um, execution. Mm-hmm. Um, Galba replaces. So I, I don't know where in the narrative it would seem to me to be that Galba has to be there for Caligula to meet him. So, in fact, in the narrative, that happens much earlier, but it's not in the sequence that you would find in Suetonius. Oh. Then we get the uh, crossing of the Rhine with the Praetorians under, under Caligula. Um, he creates this new thing called the uh, Exploratorius Corona, the military award with stars and all sorts of fancy stuff. Yeah. Um, then we get a mention of hostages being brought, um, and, and it's confusing as to whether these are hostages that have come from presumably a school or a institution that Augustus had formed. It's probably Ravenna, one of those places, um, where hostages, hostes, are not um, in, in the sense of people chained and held for money, and then when you pay the reward. No, these are, these are people, client kings and allies, right. send um, to, to the care of the Romans to be educated and brought up, and in a sense become allies and pro-Roman spokespeople. Mm-hmm. So that, that they're not, hostage is probably the wrong word. I don't, I don't know what an alternative would be. They're certainly not captives. That's what I'm trying to say. Not right. captives. Right. These, 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 are, these are a privileged few who are looked after pretty well, and they get sent back, and it's an exchange of diplomatic uh, good niceties. So somehow these 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 hostages are involved. Um, then we get this uh, chasing by the cavalry, and a bunch of guys then go uh, to dinner, sitting upright in their armor, mm-hmm. which would seem to be the result of having had a military exercise, and they're all sitting in their armor having a good old time because wasn't it a jolly old wheeze, right? <laughs> right? And then we go back to Swetonus, and he's then talking about um, Caius crossing the Rhine in the chariot. Uh, but then in, in this kind of bizarre situation, turns around, jumps onto a horse and races back to the Rhine and setting up a competition against the people to keep up. Mm-hmm. We all know that um, Caligula is a great fan of horse racing. So that plays into the narrative of that. And then under Tacitus, we get this sort of uh, this memory, this, this little thing where he says the whole thing is a joke. Um, or at least by the time that he's writing about it, mm-hmm. it's considered to be one. Right. So so you look at those kind of segmented subheadings and, and you say – what sense can you make of it? And, and the impression I get from it is there may have been an intention to to deal with some kind of military threat on the frontier. So Lentulus is swapped out for Galba um, for a variety of reasons, maybe not quite clear. Two extra legions are put in there. Of course, we're now talking the time when after AD 9 with the loss of three and the Varus, yes. the 20 had gone down to 25. So maybe the bringing in the two is a recognition that, you know what, we maybe didn't do a good job there. We need to bolster up because it's a Long river and frontier, so we've got to we've got to deal with that. Um, but there does seem to be some incursion into Gaul by by statement of that we saw earlier. Um, Galba's a great guy to put in that the disciplinarian. So you, you have a, a great uh, deputy on, on on the frontier where it's needed. Mm-hmm. But all these kind of crossings over, um, they don't seem terribly um, intentional. With with you know, big forces like Tiberius would have had right. uh, in eighty six to go after Marbodoos, um, you know, really intending to to get traction north of the Rhine. It, it doesn't doesn't appear that way. 
Right. Yeah, because because I agree with I agree with that because it's like let's deal with the Germans who've crossed over because they have to learn a lesson. We've got to engage with them. Plus, our men need training. But right, no massive um, armies going across the Rhine to try to um, either establish a military career or, or keep up with other people. So I have to ask this adventure in Germany. Does it at all tie in with what happens along the the English Channel uh, with him maybe or maybe not trying to duplicate what Caesar did by resubjugating the British? Well, again, let's let's let's, let's go back to to what we actually know of what what's said because this is this is I think that the, the NASA test of all this. Right. Um, it, it starts off with uh, we, we get this from so we're talking about a, a letter coming from Madminius, mm-hmm. who is the um, the son of uh, Cnobolinus in Camalodunum of the British tribe the Catabolone. Uh, it's a very powerful British king. Um, who would seem to be claiming to be the king of the Britons. I don't know whether that's an appellation that he comes up with or maybe the Roman writers come up with. Yeah. Um, certainly the, the coinage of uh, Cunobolinus uh, and, and the Camus, which you see, I actually have one. I have a, a British a gold state of myself, Ooh. and it's beautiful. Um, you know, th- 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 These are sophisticated people. I mean, these, these are not Iron Age bumpkins. Right. These are sophisticated people yes. um, and, and clearly quite powerful operating from their citadel at um, or settlement at uh, Colchester. So for a variety of reasons, Adminius is basically uh, kicked out uh, with his followers, and he does what other people have done going back at least to Augustus and probably Julius Caesar. They, they go as a deputation and say, my lord, um, I, I come here and, and uh, you know, I, I sort of prostrate myself at you, right. and uh, you, know, you can have my country. You can have my country if you basically give me um, uh, protections and so on. And, and this then gets into Caligula's head, apparently, it's alleged, that he needs to go off and, and, and conquer the island of Britain. Now, another way of looking at it is, is that um, I, I think I read somewhere that he had already been declared the cognomen Britannicus mm-hmm. um, in anticipation of something happening. He already had the title Germanicus because of his dad, and his dad got it through um, his father, Claudius Drusus, it was a hereditary title. So, you know, this is this is an indication of collecting titles because it looks good on the coins and inscriptions. Right. Um, but, but effectively, you can argue that, um, you know, where, where you've got, uh, this is the sort of the context. And I, what does it say here? Um, again, Suetonius cast the 43.1. He had but one experience with military affairs or war, and then on a sudden impulse, for having gone to Vivania to visit the river Clitumnus and its grove, he was reminded of the necessity of recruiting his bodyguard of Batavians and was seized with the idea of an expedition to Germany. So that having, uh, without delay, he established legions and so on and so on. So, so, so we know he's in the in the area. Right. Um, we know this is this is thirty nine forty. It's really about six months, and he's. It would seem to be what he does. His guys just simply uh, do a left turn. March along the River Rhine, mm-hmm. and and maybe at the mouth of of the of the River Rhine, and maybe just turn left a little bit, and you know I, I guess on a fine day you you could see the coast of uh, what will be Norfolk, Suffolk, or something. Can, um, and he goes through this really interesting little uh, performance of boarding a trireme and going out. Um, in the meantime, the ballistas and catapults have been lined up on the shore, mm-hmm. and uh, he goes off, and he—I would imagine—in a sort of like a mock thing, conquering Neptune and so on. Yeah. But in a sense, he's asserting the right of the princeps. I have been given this in a letter. I've got a letter from Adminius saying that you know, basically, there's nine now, right. um, so I'm just going to go across. I'm going to conquer the German Ocean, um, and he comes back, and the order is given now. Pick, pick shells up, put them in your helmets, and you know uh, we'll build a far tower so that we can aid in shipping. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't know how much of that. Again, it's 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 the story that we're told by uh, our good friend Suetonius. Right. What details are missing? Um, is there some interpretation going on here? Because again, if the narrative is to make the guy look really weird, strange, stupid, verging on insanity, um, if you present it in those terms, a guy notorious for performances and doing crazy stuff in women's clothes, partly, mm-hmm. uh, and, and jumps on board, does this performance in the middle of the sea, and then comes back and people collect seashells, um, you know, well, Obviously, it's stupid. Right. Um, but on the other hand, it, it, it's very symbolic because then he can then claim he gets a triumph and he goes back and he worries about the details of a, a triumph and, again, displays hostages, ghouls dressed up as Germans and so on. Um, and, and again, it, it's it's the problem with the source. We, we don't know how much of this is reworked, redressed, repurposed mm-hmm. um, from original fact. So it, it's really hard. Uh, to tell now, uh, there's a guy that's actually written a whole book about um, Caligula as, as a military commander. I, I haven't read it, mm-hmm. um, and it, it would be quite fascinating to, to get his interpretation on all of this. But but I, I just get the impression that the if there was an intention to do anything, it was probably against Germany, not Britain. Right. Um, he had the army there, and it was just up the coast. Let's wander up there and turn left. We have got to go back anyway, mm-hmm. um, and. Maybe it was maybe it was something he thought. Well, my dad did this, and my granddad did this, you know, and they they did all right over it. Um, but it's again, Britain is 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 within the Roman sphere of influence, but it's not actually a dominion. Right. So there's still this impression of mm, exotic, sort of far away, misty islands on. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to say I've sort of conquered it is 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 a great way to to, to present this back at back in Rome. Right. He, he would. I just have to say real quick, he wouldn't be the first uh, emperor leader to do a either victory lap or a propaganda lap and go home and, and claim something because the people at Rome aren't going to know any different. So you certainly can't fault him for that. And and it is something that the uh, the Roman people would absolutely love. You know, they love their military heroes. And maybe he did do something while he was out there. It doesn't hurt to, you know. To, to well, kind so, of so, for that, so, yeah. so again, in, in the very few clips that we have from, again, Tacitus, and I know you guys like Tacitus, Agricola, 13.4, he says that, that Caius Caesar meditated an invasion of Britain is perfectly clear, mm-hmm. right? But his purposes rapidly formed were easily changed. I mean, mm-hmm. we're dealing with somebody, at least even in, in his uh, depiction of this man, right. is, is quixotic, temperamental, um, sounds like a guy we got over here. Um, you know, okay. a, a sort of changes his mind and is not accountable for his actions because right. you know it, it's it's this is who he is. I mean, you just have to go with what his his mood is, uh, and it is certainly terrifying for those people who face him daily. And and, and uh, just to give a kind of context, yeah. um, when I was giving a class to my my, my guys at uh, UT Austin, um, I was uh, interested to find there's a piece in Philo. Philo is the Alexandrian Jew mm-hmm. um, who talks about things and actually got to meet Caligula. And the scene is that Caligula is in his in his palace right. on the Palatium and is decorating the room and apparently picking jewels and stuff to go in the walls and getting a bit kind of irate with some of the choices being given. And Philo basically has to sort of deal with him and he's in this frame of mind. He's worried about colors and jewels, right? He's not right. worried about this. And, and Philo basically said, when he had given some of his orders about the buildings, he then asked a very important and solemn question. And the question is, why is it that you abstain from eating pig's meat, right? Which strikes right. us as being a bizarre question. But, you know, that, that tells me he knows that Jews uh, don't eat pork and clove. To which Philo answered, we answered, different nations have different laws, and there are some things forbidden both to us and to our adversaries. 
Mm-hmm. Then someone said, there are also many people who do not eat lamb's flesh, which is the most tender of all meat. He, Caius, laughed and said, they're quite right, for it is not nice. And then goes off and picks jewels, and the right. audience has ended. Um, so, so you're dealing with someone who is uh, not normal in the sense that he, he um, that focuses on things because he snaps his fingers and things get done. Yes. If he decides right now, I've got it into my head um, that I actually want to conquer Britain because I got this letter. Hey, I got an army. Let's go down and see what I. He gets there and goes, um, yeah. maybe not. It's, right. it's wet today. I mean, God help us. It's, it's February, right? February in yes. the English Channel. North Sea is not something that you want to do on a ferry normally, but, but you know, on a trireme, probably even less so. Right. Um, I, I, but, it, but it makes it makes a really, if you're, if you're looking for a kind of an interesting uh, narrative to tell in your book, yes, um, I, I think it's, it's a good story. So to answer your question, I'm going back, it, it's really hard to make sense. It sounds like to me the German expeditions were military exercises that they had decided they needed at least one, two legions, and they seem to be the primogenial legions. Mm. Uh, Galba is a, is a great disciplinarian and seems to be able to hammer recruits into shape in you know, six months and less. Um, and that's probably a good thing, right? Because, I mean, now we're dealing with frontier politics and military policymaking. Um, so you could argue indirectly Caligula is responsible for a good thing. Right. Um, and the British thing is just a whim that, um, you know, he, Augustus had thought about going there, but got distracted because he had to go to Gaul and Spain, so never carried on with it. And you could argue also, just as Augustus, because he had British kings coming to him, uh, basically forming diplomatic alliances. In the Roman mentality, you didn't always have to conquer a country. You just had to have influence over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and either having a client king, and there were British client kings who were quite willing to work with Romans. I mean, you look at uh, Camelodunum as a case in point. They're writing on their coins in Latin letters. They're importing Roman goods and they're shipping out British goods. There's a trade thing going on that there's there's growing evidence that i think in uh, in kent and probably further south along the coast is there there's there are trading entrepots there are trading posts mm-hmm. um uh, where, where shipping comes in and they do trades and so on and you know there's kind of diplomatic relations and you know it's it's a good good old business and for, for the tribes like the regni uh, the atrobates and the belgai um this this these are good times because they can then sell the goods further on up to the less fortunate who don't have uh, access to the coast. Um, and, and I think there's archaeological evidence now that's showing that there may even have been troops in Britain before AD 43. Uh, there may have been, for example, in Fishbourne, some kind of outpost. And, and wouldn't it be interesting if, had we had Tacitus, he would, a, he yes. would reveal to us that, yes, there had been uh, a military um, uh, guard sent out there, just like the, the Romans appear to have had in, uh, in the Land Valley and Valgamus um, in the period 4 to 9 uh, AD mm. uh, with the Germans um, that, that this is what you do you, you trade in goods and then when it gets to a point where there's a lot of money in this trade we need to own this place right. and then you send the expedition in. Yeah because you're right there's that there's more than one way to, to control or own a uh, territory and if you control its economy or if it leader maybe was born not born but raised in Rome and taught Roman ways that's another way to control it. So Going back to the, for lack of a better word, fickleness that Caligula mm. seems to demonstrate, and we can't forget that he had a very unusual childhood. He had those years on Capri. I'm sure he saw some crazy things. He comes to power when he's 24 years old. 
no, hardly ever is it a good idea to give 24-year-old 20, absolute power. But when it mm-hmm. comes to the stories that have been handed down, the his torturing people, random killings, incest, promoting his horse, um, what's your take on that? Or either maybe, because you kind of touched on this earlier, but how the uh, history should be viewed when it comes to those more dramatic scenes that have been painted out for us time and again. So, so this is why I recommend uh, listeners to actually go uh, borrow from the library or even better, buy a copy of Alois Winterling's Caligula Abography. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can read it in the original German, which I don't have the German to read, but, but um, it, it, it makes a lot of the very interesting points about these exact issues. Right. So i try to sort of summarize them here for you. Um, okay. what, the first thing is that you have to understand that when, when uh, the ancient world talks about insanity stroke madness, it doesn't quite mean what we mean by it. Oh. Okay, so for um, what they meant really is a senseless behavior or incomprehensible speech. Right. So there were there were um, stories like Celsus um, uh, talks about diagnoses, um, uh, delusions that, that reason is disturbed. I think that's a story about somebody who would believe that he was a headless person talking through his chest and things like this. You know, um, that, that would be it's, it's this idea of not necessarily um, because they don't understand how the brain works. Remember, mm-hmm. that, um, that, that they're sort of understanding things through behaviors and th- through how people speak. So you can you can do things and they will label it madness because there's no other word to really kind of understand or describe what they're doing. Right. So if, if again, if we go to our checklist of who's saying what. So Seneca, who is a contemporary Caligula, mentions his madness. He uses two words, furor and insania, and even uses words like the beast or a beast back in beastly behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so Philo, this is the man you just told, where he was talking about uh, pork and so on. Um, rights of mania, insanity, and he's doing it within this context, blasphemy for demanding to be venerated as divine in Jerusalem. You remember the t- second temple is standing in Jerusalem at this point. Yes. You know, the the, the, the uh, civil war and the, the destruction of the second temple is another 30, 30 years in the future. Um, so when somebody says, I want to put this in the Holy of Holies, I mean, to an Orthodox Jew, that's, that's, you know, that, that's mad right. to do that. Right. Um, Pliny, the man I like, the Pliny, the elder, that's to say, um, talked about his insania in the context of megalomaniacal building projects. Mm-hmm. So um, Caligula actually finished a number of buildings which had started under Tiberius and good fame. He actually, he actually did some physical construction because actually Tiberius didn't do terribly much in his lifetime compared to, let's say, Augustus right. uh, and the aspiration of Julius Caesar. So, again, we, we have this idea. And, again, if, if Tiberius didn't do kind of very much and then suddenly Caligula does, then, you know, wow, this is mad. What are you doing? Oh, right. um, Josephus sees his behavior as absurd. In, in, and, again, he's kind of uh, along the lines of Philo. He's also uh, a Jew, mm-hmm. uh, talking, again, through the Jewish tradition of blasphemy and, and traditions and things like that. And then we talk about uh, Tacitus, where he uses the expression turbata mens, troubled brain. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what he's really talking about there, though, is, is really in sort of like a, a moral trouble. Um, and he uses the same words like cunning, malice, capriciousness in the context of Tiberius, Claudius, and Nero. Now, we don't think of Claudius as being necessarily mad or necessarily even Tiberius. We, we, we give them other kind of um, maybe complexes or something, but we don't think of them right. as being insane. And then it's really where you get to Suetonius. He really considers something mentally ill, uh, needing to clear his brain. And the expression there is de purgando cerebro. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so we come back once again to a particular perceived view that the primary biographer and therefore our primary source on this man, um, he, he has shaped it. 
Now, Seneca really uses the the, the word in a moral uh, moral depravity sense. I mean, this basically uh, he's in violation of aristocratic conventions. And by the way, it's it's a word he also used with Alexander the Great. His successes right. were also considered to be violations of aristocratic. I mean, drinking and partying and all that sort of stuff was really not dignified for a leader to undertake. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the same way, then, um, things like, you could argue, um, the, that the way that he apparently raises, allegedly raises, uh, Incitatus's horse to be consul is actually a comment, and this is, I, I get this idea from Mary Beard, so I credit her with this, right. is that it's a comment, he is making a comment, a dig at the aristocracy, saying, see, I think you guys are so fat and lazy, I'm actually going to put my horse in charge <laughs> as consul. Right. Okay? Yes. All right? This is, how, this is how low I think you guys have fallen. Wow. And, and there's, a, there's another kind of context here, which again, Vintling makes, which is to say that nobody in his own day is is uttering sordid tales of uh, incest and sex with family members and also they all come from guess where suetonius those are inventions after caligula's time and um it's again suits his gender because it's this monstrous beastly man that i've now contrived to create because compare him to germanicus Mm -hmm. but at the same time you could argue if that was going on implicitly the senate is executing his orders and the army is doing things as he wishes everybody's kind of going along with it so are they mad too because they kind of support the thing so um you know there's there's a very interesting kind of um dynamic here which is that that Again, for Suetonius to present this particular persona fits his purpose, but I don't think it gels with the, the, the greater context of the contemporary scene at the time. Seneca and those sorts of people who were co- concerned about moral behavior would have made hay if they had actually understood he was having incest with his sister. Right. Because this would be the ultimate example of, of why the, 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 the king man, the, the aristocrat, the, uh, the tyrant, Mm-hmm. Um, should never be allowed to do what he does because this man is unchecked. And, and, and to that point, um, you know, I, I look back at the environment that that uh, this young man grew up in. Yeah. Um, he was kind of the, the, the you know the sports son. Um, you know, he he went with his dad and his mother up to the German frontier, and they walked straight into a mutiny. And uh, you know, the the, the 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 soldiers really loved the kid. And there's this scene where, uh, in order to preserve the safety of the boy, the, the, the son is basically handed over to some auxiliary cavalry, and they're going to leave. And the soldiers are bereft; they're not taking our mascot away. Good God! Exactly. And that kind of breaks the kind of breaks the the, the, the mutiny. And interestingly, to, to, again about military exercises, what's mm-hmm. one of the first things that Germanicus does to raise morale of the troops? He crosses the Rhine and beats the shit out of sorry, sir, beats the hell out of the people uh, the cavalry. I think across the right they didn't do anything but they're yeah. a great little target to go and, and instill some discipline get some blood in in in, in the um, in the eyes and faces of these um, troops who need discipline I mean they were they were doing things which were completely outside the pale right. discipline is restored and Galba does the same kind of thing when he goes near recruits I'm going to give you a taste of blood right so right. you all know what it's like now and you can then sort of wipe the swords and say we did this we're now soldiers we're soldiers. Um, so, so, so this is the concept as, as a young man, he then goes back, Germanicus dies and then gradually through, uh, you've covered all these in your episodes, but the, but, but the, we can argue whether the, the, Tiberius is 
properly perceived. And by the way, he's the guy I'm writing about in my next biography. Nice. So I have a view on that too. But the, but the interesting thing there is that his sons, uh, his, sons his, his brothers gradually by, by fair means and foul all seem to be liquidated. Yes. And he's like the last person standing. And I think it's like as October, is it, uh, is it 31? He goes to Capri and whether or not those things in Capri are true, I have a suspicion they're probably not because it's great to be able to say, we don't know what's going over there, but we can surmise the following. Right. That, um, you know, it would have been quite an intense place. And Tiberius, in my view, had taken the last order from his boss, the governor, Alexander uh, Augustus, had basically said, your mission, and don't screw it up, is to keep this thing I've created going. Okay, right. this is your last order. And Tiberius is the great soldier and will obey the command until he dies because that's what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't make it terribly imaginative, but he's a great soldier and he follows orders and gets stuff done. Right. Um, and into this sort of rather intense, somewhat boring, uh, I would imagine, um, uh, what I could say, uh, false atmosphere of, of these and there wasn't one palace or several palaces in, in Capri and they may well have been executions and so on because maybe maybe the guy was deranged at a certain point you know, when he's isolated from the world like that yeah. uh, he, but anyway the point is the, imp- the implication of all of this is that he grows up in his teens with some very strange role models yes. he's lost his father who was a great role model he never got to know his, uh, his granddad um, he only hears about these things uh, through, through stories and the family will tell him um, and, and, and it must be a terrible education. There's not really anybody that will keep him in check. And I, and I think, again, this, this context, the aristocracy is, is enabling him to do it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it, unless anybody stands up, and I guess the, the, the attempt by Lentulus to assassinate him was one attempt to try and bring this man in to heal by killing him, and then ultimately it's Cassius Carrier who does it. Uh, is is this idea that you're kind of all implicit? You're you're letting this happen, yes. right? Yeah. Um, so don't blame me. You're going along with it, right? Right. I I have to ask, keeping the spotlight on Suetonius the way you did just a second ago, um, with him being executed, still a young man. I think he's like 28, something like that. As far as I know, he's still popular with the people. He's not. If he is if he is doing horrible things or whatever, he's not doing it to the masses. It's to the to the aristocracy. So when the senators or whoever get together and they finally, after I guess you could say several attempts to to bring this guy down, when he is killed, isn't it the senators or the elite just trying to protect themselves? They really don't care any more about the people than any other uh, elite group does in any country. Uh, so set this up then as an answer. Um, when when he is announced as being the princeps, and you can argue, you know, he got there legitimately or not, but um, he, he, as I recall, he sails on a barge into into Rome, and people receive him as the son of Germanicus Caesar. Right, there's still this amazing love and. Uh, respect mm-hmm. for this man they they feel should really have been the emperor you know we was we was robbed so along comes this this young son um, and in the initial months seems to sort of fit with this idea and, and my, my impression is that he was a populist he was an autocrat surely but but was a populist and did things that people liked uh, like these buildings he's finishing the buildings um, this interesting thing where he builds this uh, pontoon bridge across the, the Gulf of Baiae um, you know, and people can wander across this. I mean, you can imagine doing that. I mean, they were a crazy-ass idea, but, um, you know, it's, it, it's really popular because we've yeah. got this this guy who does this crazy shit, and, you know, we, we like him. Um, and it's actually apparently because there had been an inference that Trasillus 
uh, the astrologer of Tiberius had actually said there's no chance of this guy uh, uh, being the emperor as of actually, you know, walking across the Gulf of Baiae. So mm-hmm. guess what? He builds a bridge and said, see, <laughs> right. see, my, 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 my reign is validated. OK, right. it is unquestioned. I, I got here. I got the votes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and all this. So um, what, what I'm reading here, for example, again, I think this is uh, Life of Caius 13.1. He fulfilled the highest hopes of the Roman people or may I say of all my kind since he was the prince most earnest, desired by the great part of the provincials and soldiers, many of whom had had him in his infancy, as well as by the whole body of the city populace, because of the memory of his father Germanicus and pity for a family that was all but extinct. Mm. So he he comes on board with a wonderful grand swell of goodwill, yeah. um, and and then if you believe the sources, uh, in those next four years, it's sort of unravels and becomes rather unchecked and, and bad behavior. I mean, this guy has not been trained to uh, run the Roman Empire. I mean, right. Augustus had to learn it, and he had great help from Agrippa in the first instance and then Tiberius. But the point, he's always had good people. He was a smart decider in choosing a team of deputies, and he, he was really hands-on in that way. He chose good people. And Tiberius did a lot of the same thing, but interestingly, didn't rotate people the same way that his uh, success, his predecessor did. He, mm-hmm. If you're a guy, good guy, Len, tell us, I have no reason to move you. You can stay in Germany for 10 years. I don't care. <laughs> Keep doing it. Right. Uh, and then Caligula doesn't have any of those things. He hasn't had any military experience, so we can tell. Yeah. Apart from being, you know, little boots in the army camp, where he's fawned over and treated like, you know, the prince that he thinks he is, um, and 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 so so I I think that if if you're not in that popular class, uh, and and again it's it's very easy to think of these these senators as somehow rather being like Cicero and, and that generation. Mm-hmm. I mean, those people were dead ninety years or something, right? Right. Um, so so this is this this is a different group of senators. I mean, they have lived under Augustus if they're, if they're alive. Um, and he, goodness knows, culled the ranks of the Senate often enough mm-hmm. uh, to ensure that the people that really were pro him and his agenda sort of rather were the ones who had the seats. And every so often Augustus would uh, change the rules to make it hard for certain groups to come in and he'd offer money to other people he wanted to come in so they could qualify. Right. Um, and then, you know, Tiberius starts off by saying, look, you know, I'm going to respect who you are. Um, you know, I, I, you are the conscript fathers, and I'm happy to work in partnership and consultation with you guys. Uh, and so now, you know, by the time we get to Caligula, I mean, th- this is not the group of senators that were in the civil wars of before. Um, to some degree, I mean, these are pampered, privileged mm-hmm. elites. Um, and in the meantime, the equestrian group is is emerging much more as a group from which public officials and, and uh, military ranks are being promoted. Um, so it's really the questions are kind of moving along and, and becoming more and more important. And it's interesting that you know, Plin the Elder um, and all these sorts of people are questions. They're not they're not necessarily. Um, oh. But it is people like Tacitus who are right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they are reading the history books of Phidias Bassus and all these sorts of people. And by the way, Pliny the Elder finishes the unfinished book of Phidias Bassus, which was he was seen as the natural successor to Livy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he writes like 37 books, so, you know, good on him. He actually finishes the book. And not one single word of Phidias Bassus survives, by the way. Um, so, so we know that Tacitus is in this tradition of senatorial historians. Um, and as far as I know, he comes from another part of Italy, which is not really in Rome but rather fancies himself and allies himself with that, that sort of proud tradition. And, and they, in a sense, I suppose, like, um, and this is probably stretching the analogy a little bit, um, 
like a British aristocracy of the turn of the, the 20th century, living a 19th century life of entitlement. Right. Well, you know, this is what we do, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and, and actually the world around them is changing. And, yes. you know, it, it doesn't matter that you've got the title. There are richer plebeians now. Uh, yeah. There are richer equestrians now. Uh, and they are having a great deal more influence with the man in the Palatium than some of these other guys are. Mm. Um, so, so I think it's a way more nuanced picture. And again, the people writing the history, and, and, I'm, and I'm fascinated by uh, another comment in Tacitus' Annals. It's right at the front of the book where he says, the histories of Tiberius, Caius, Claudius, and Nero, while they were in power, were falsified through terror, and after their death were written under the irritation of a recent hatred. So that's tantamount to admitting what they wrote in the day is suspect because they were writing under duress and they had to be very careful what they wrote. Right. And then when that stopped and they opened the doors and said, you can write whatever you write, then they just went to town and wrote all the resentful stuff. Sure. So either way, it's biased. It, it, it's not a straightforward telling. Um, and the shame is we don't have Tacitus to counterbalance what we know from Sweet Times. And, and also Aphidius Bassus and all these other people. And who knows, in Herculaneum, they may well find in the scrolls all these lost books and we'll be thrilled to bits with that. Right. Um, so it's really hard to tell. But I, the impression I get is is that the, the elites, um, having in a sense gone along with this whole thing, um, realized it was a very bad deal. And oh, by the way, mm-hmm. when, of course, he's murdered and it's Claudius takes over, some semblance of... Uh, senatorial balance is resumed, and it's it's very telling that um, that there's a moment in time, mm-hmm. just a matter of days, where in the wake of the death of uh, of Caligula, um, the, the Senate discusses: Shall we go back to the old days of the popular assemblies and the Senate, when we, you know, the Senatus Populus Quirumanus, the, the, the balancing act between these two groups of community investors? Um, rule this community, the rest of the public, the Commonwealth. Right. And guess what they decided to do? They say we're going to pick, we're going to go with the Praetorian cohort's recommendation. We'll put in this fool, we think, Claudius. Um, and presumably they thought, well, actually, it's one guy we can always uh, point, point fingers at if it goes belly up, um, and we can control him. After all, he's a fool, right. uh, and so on and so on. And didn't they get that wrong? So um, <laughs> I, I think what 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 you, what you get out of all of this is, is is in a sense a cowardice that goes along with the senatorial class who yes. didn't really stand up to Caligula when they had the chance. Maybe one or two did uh, met their grisly ends, but most people went along with it. Guess what? Because you know what? I mean, we're still getting our tax revenues. We're still getting this. I mean. The, Life is okay for those people who bend and weave, and this is often the case with um, autocrats. There's this this group of people who can kind of go along with it, right. and then when those autocrats are overthrown, then there's a reckoning, right? That, that you know, the, the, there's the the uh, people have to account for their uh, deeds, good, bad, or otherwise. And um, yeah. the impression I get is that, uh, that 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 Caligula was supported by most ranks of society because we'd have heard if. There were major challenges afterwards, if that was the case. Good point. Well, uh, Lindsay, again, I know I know we're kind of running long on time, but I really do appreciate your your spending the day with us, and I'm sure um, all of the research you had to do to to kind of really drill down and interpret things. I I really do appreciate that. If I can ask just one last question, just a just a sure. general, you know, whatever. But zooming out a little bit, how would you? either rate or how does Caligula impact the Julio-Claudian line of emperors? Because we know there's only a couple left. I just wonder how you see him 
compared to those before and after him. So my uh, my zooming out, looking at 32,000 32, feet down on this counter, <laughs> is it really? It was it was a short lived influence. He 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 reigned, if that's the right word. And right. It's not really. Uh, three years and ten months. Okay, mm-hmm. so it wasn't long enough. I think that Augustus was there for like, like forty five years. Yeah. Um, so really, for for most people uh, living in the Roman Empire. Um, you know, the coins might be getting to you with his name on by the first year, and you know, you're always in the wake of the news flow. Right. Um, and you can imagine that people like, um, you know, Philo and Alexandria, I mean, it was, it was unusual in actually having personal contact, but most people didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to guess that, uh, you know, the news that he'd taken over from Tiberius took a while to get to the frontiers. Certainly went to the army very quickly because they had to make sure that the army was, was behind the new right. guy. Um, and, and, and again, what you'll find is, is that the army seems to be pretty res- – as long as they get their donatives, and there's a famous coin, of course, the Adlocutio coin, which Caligula – one of the first things he issues. Right. And I've got one. It, it's, it's a really good coin. It's, it's, it's a large Sestertius sort of upon this um, uh, this toged figure raising his arm with the assembled standards, the cohorts praetorii. Um, and donatives go out. I'm convinced that those coins, by the way, were the ones that they actually gave to the army because they could mint them pretty damn quick in, in Rome. Right. The silver coins being made elsewhere. Um, so I would imagine that one of the first things that when, when, when Claudius takes over, he's actually in the Praetorian army camp, right? Mm-hmm. So, so he's already got the backing of the army and they're going to be with him. And very quickly, the memory of, 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 of Caligula is, um, how can I describe this, is uh, put in its proper context that, that there are big issues that, that Claudius has to deal with. He's got to, you know, establish his credentials with the with the people in the Senate because mm-hmm. he's had a rather bad reputation up to that point, right? right? So you see him very quickly associating with the memory of his father. So Nero Claudius Drusus, there's these outpouring of coins with his name on there mm-hmm. and the achievements. And what you'll see very quickly are coins with De Germanis, which is to say that there's a triumphal arch from Germans. And there are these implications that, look, my dad, my dad yeah. was a great guy. Okay, and, and I'm his flesh and blood. And then he goes off, interesting enough, very quickly, he goes uh, on a tour. He goes, when, when they're assembling the invasion force of Britain in AD 43, so they're preparing in 41, 42, yeah. um, he actually goes on this ceremonial tour, and he goes up all the way through Italy, and he goes basically uh, along the coast, and then I think it's on the way back, he actually comes along the road that his father had built, uh, mm. which, which goes through the Alps and through Bergamo. It's, it's almost as though he's saying, I'm garnishing... All of the uh, the goodwill that my, my, my dad had, right. um, Nero Claudius Drusus, Germanicus Imperator, by the way, because that's his full title, he was his Imperator by acclamation. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's very interesting is he is restating, it's almost, he is purposely uh, of obliterating the memory of his predecessor. Because he, I think he understands what's at stake. Right. That there's a, there's a credibility gap personally, and there's a there's a need to reinforce. You know, um, it, 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 the, the, not not happy days are here again, but but something along those lines. Right. Um, and then when when he goes, um, let's remember that Nero reigns for thirty, and actually Claudius reigns for thirteen years and nine months. All right, so that that really puts into context the short-lived Caligula, and then along comes Nero, who arrives under strange circumstances, who also serves for thirteen years and eight months. Right. Um, so, so I think, and what's interesting is that by the time you get to there, people are rather more um, articulating views about Nero than they are about Caligula, because I, I think in the in in the 
in the parade of those Julio-Claudians, he is perceived as being the worst of all of them mm-hmm. um, by his sort of reckless behavior and, and as just immorality. Um, uh, because by then, you can argue that people were starting to come up with those stories of lurid sex stuff. I mean, you'd, have a tit- you'd, have a, you'd have a titter at the stories of Caligula, but you'd still be living under uh, um, um, Nero and you'd be worried because, you know, right. well, you could actually... You could actually and what I find fascinating is the person who ousted him was, of course, Sulpicius Galba, who was the general on the Rhine army frontier, um, and it was he was the one who saw the end of the Julio-Claudians. Um, so I, I think that's a great place to end this, really. Yeah, <laughs> there's no, a, kind of, there's yeah. a kind of natural justice here. <laughs> exactly. I love the irony in that last part. And just one last thing. I love the, the fact that you mentioned, because it still stands today, as long as those who either are in a position to change things or improve things or whatever, whether it's the aristocracy, the military, the leader, as long as they're okay they're not going to change anything. They're not going to challenge the status quo because they're benefiting, even though it might later come back to bite them in the backside. They're they're pretty compliant because they're still getting theirs. And by the time they realize that something's amiss, you know, it's it, maybe it's kind of gone off the wheels. I, I just think that's amazing that that really hasn't changed much in 2000 years because humans are the way humans are. Well, uh Yes, but then I just throw out there provocatively, why would we think otherwise? I, I think this is the yeah. big surprise that somehow we think, and, it, and it's always, you know, that this is the, the, this is the view that we have in the here and now, that we're smarter than people that came before us. <laughs> I was with the other way. I said, we are here because of the people who came before us. So just remember that's, that. That's uh, all those kids that sort of talk about computer gaming, I say, and do you remember who actually invented the first computer games and the chipsets and the platforms? Those are going to say, yeah, right, 50-year-old, 60-year-old guys. Remember that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, you know... Yeah. Uh, just, just remember, put these things on it. So, um, yeah, there, there are these the, these great sweeping sort of insights that you can get. And, and I think part of the appeal of particularly looking at the Roman period in ancient history is, one, we have all this wealth of written documentation, which gives us uh, an immediacy. We can read Spratonius, Sp- and we can we, we can have a good laugh at it because you go, yeah, 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 that sounds just like what goes in Hollywood or something. Right. Um, on the other hand, I mean, there are you know profound things that you learn about the heroism and all this sort of stuff. But then there are these basic things of security, survival and all the rest of it and you see that people hunker down when things get bad and they, they have to find a way to do it and guess what we live in a world just like that now exactly uh, Lindsay Powell thank you very much for your time it is always a pleasure talking to you and hopefully we'll have you on again um, and just keep writing those books and helping with the magazine so I have something I can lean on and pretend that I know what I'm talking about when I'm doing other podcasts y'all are very welcome y'all come see us <laughs> have a good day <laughs>